introduce Scott Dunford, who's going to preach for us this morning. Scott is married to Tara, and they have four kids. They're all here, Haley and Basil and Augustine and Caden. The Dunfords, for the last two years before moving, from my moving here and them moving to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, were next-door neighbors. In fact, we shared a duplex at Northland International University. Scott and I went to junior high and high school and college and seminary together. We roomed together. We were best men in each other's weddings. We served together in administration at Northland the last two years. He has been a youth pastor, a senior pastor, a missionary in China, a businessman in China, starting business there. He was the executive vice president at Northland. He's now the vice president of mobilization at ABWE. He's a preacher. He's a friend. And though he's, he came here about 10 years ago as uh, when he was a missionary with uh, ABWE and going to China, uh, he's, he's a friend that I want you to all enjoy and be your friend. He's, he's, he is going to come and bring 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to us this morning. Um, Scott, in listing all those things, it's obvious that he is a dear friend to me in my life. He's a counselor. He knows me probably better than anybody other than my wife. And so if you want to get insight into me, you can... You can talk to Scott, and he'll, he'll probably give more insight than I have. Um, but I, I hope that, I, I hope and I have prayed that God will, will have and will be doing a work in my life and in your life as he unpacks this text. I think this is a text, and this is a truth that we need to hear here today as we go into the Advent Christmas season. And so let's, let's tune our hearts. Let's ask God to tune our hearts to be attentive to his word. And so, thank you, Scott. We come and you preach. A few weeks ago, we were enjoying that deep sleep. I think you know what I'm talking about. That comes about 3.30 in the morning. It's like that deepest part where you're just kind of somewhere other than this earth. In the middle of that deep, deep sleep, we heard this incredible, ear-shattering crash. I don't know what it's like in your family, but when things happen like that in the middle of the night, um, I have a hard time waking up. But my wife, on the other hand, immediately jumps out of bed, and she rushes into the other room because she is certain that a tree, we don't have trees this big in our yard, a tree hit the kids' room and the kids were destroyed. Or something like that. For the sake of the story. Or lightning or something. It was lightning raining outside. And by the time I kind of wake out of, out of my grogginess, I realize it couldn't be lightning. It wasn't a tree. And we started making our way to the window, and we saw in the front of our house a incredible crash. 3.30 in the morning. The car had come screaming down our very quiet street and smashed into our neighbor's car, which was parked out on the road. And, and now we see this car, this accident, and glass shattering everywhere. And in the middle of this drizzle and rain, you see the headlights from the one car that are still on, and the door propped open. And you're trying to see through your window what's happening down below. And, 
we can't we couldn't see a person in the car, but we knew that something had happened, and, and maybe that guy had got out of the car for some reason and hit the road or was running, or maybe he was laying in the car dead. We didn't know. So immediately call 911. At those moments, there's millions of thoughts that go through my head, and I'm sure if you were in that situation, a million thoughts go through, through your mind as well. My wife is trying to make her way downstairs. She's going to do CPR if there's someone there, and I'm trying to hold her back. And you know, make sure you bring your mask if this happens. I don't want you to get AIDS. Okay, I'm a pastor. I'm a missionary. I've trained missionaries. Now I'm the VP of a mission agency. I've traveled across oceans, and I've learned foreign languages, and I've braved the streets and restaurants of exotic places. And yet, what's on my mind? AIDS. Oh, honey, I don't want you to get AIDS. Or guns. And that was the second thought in my mind. Like, if this guy is in this car at 3.30 in the morning, and uh, what if he had a gun, and what if he's running from the law, and what if he tried to shoot us? I finally got brave enough to pull my wife back and to take the lead and made my way outside, and there we see a man covered in blood and laying in his car, and he's struggling to get conscious and get out of the car because in the car he's surrounded by drugs. He's surrounded by cash. And you think, oh no. Guns get shot. And drugs doesn't usually indicate this is a law-abiding person who cares that much about me. And then as we're thinking about this, and the police show up, and the fire truck show up, and it's clear what's going on, then I kind of wanted to slink off into the darkness because I didn't want to get entangled into whatever this was going to turn into, right? Because the police start questioning you, you become a witness, and pretty soon you're showing up at court. Basically, I didn't want my life to be affected by this guy that I didn't know that was now intruding into my yard and broke up my beautiful night's sleep. Every single thing about my reaction was from a merely human point of view. According to the flesh, as Paul might put it. I thought about absolutely everything that could happen in this situation except his eternal soul. What's the problem with that? Okay, I know we're in church, but just imagine you're just sitting around your kitchen table and we're talking about this story and we're just talking about life and the church hat off. What's the problem with that? Really? What's the problem with me thinking about what's best for my family, what's best for my wife, or what's best for my kids, and protecting them, protecting myself, and not getting caught up in things that really don't concern me very much? What's the problem about thinking myself even just a little bit in this situation? I mean, consider this. How should we be thinking today in middle Michigan on the heels of what was, for many of you, a very traumatic day yesterday? For the rest of you, that was a very awesome day. Not about Michigan, but Michigan State. Okay, we're coming off a great holiday. We're coming off of all this excitement. And now we're supposed to think about refugees in Syria? Really? Bombings in Paris? AIDS in Africa? ISIS in the Middle East? We're talking about Advent and giving away gifts to, to neighbors who don't know us? How should we be thinking about the family next door with the addiction to stuff? Or the Muslims down the street here in Dearborn or nearby even. How can I think about that stuff when I've got a mortgage to pay? Or 
kid that needs braces, Christmas to pay for, or retirement accounts that are getting rocked by this stock market that just can't seem to make up its mind. Coming to church, to a church like this, on a Sunday morning is probably the most dangerous thing you can do. It isn't. Because if you are not careful, when you come to a church like this, on a Sunday, the gospel could wreck your perfect American dream life. This morning, if we take a few minutes to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 to 21, we're going to look at, at ourselves and how the gospel transforms us and, and really wrecks us for the American dream. Then we'll take it out from there. Let's read and then we'll open in prayer and dive right into the text. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And for our sake, he made him to be no sin who knew no sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, I repent of my desire to protect my life. I repent of my desire and my desire to protect the things that, that make me comfortable. Lord, help me to treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help that treasuring of the gospel to cause me to, instead of holding on to the things that I want to hold dear, hold on to the things that are truly dear, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and this message of reconciliation you've given us to the nations and to our neighbors. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray. First thing we see here in these passages that I want to bring us to, we're going to start with ourselves, even though it's kind of in the middle of this passage, and then we're going to look at how it affects our neighbors and how it affects our view of God. So starting, first of all, the gospel wrecks your view of yourself. And we see this in verse 17, a passage which we're very, very familiar with, probably. What does it say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The old has passed away and the new has come. I've always heard this verse. Many of you have heard this verse many, many times in your life. You think about it in terms of the fact that I don't have to live in my sin any longer. And this is an encouraging verse about the effect that the gospel has in our life. We think of all the filth and the trash and the garbage that we've done before, and the fact the gospel comes in and transforms our life and gives us a new life, and that is encouraging. And that is an important part of this verse. That the gospel truly does transform us and make us new. But it also doesn't just leave us in the fact that, hey, you've got a new life. Go do what you want to do. No, we look at the context here. Paul is clearly setting up in, in a context that says, and you're going to do something with that. 
God didn't just save you and make you clean and make you right so you can do whatever you want to do. Is that you get your ticket to heaven and you're going to be all good. No, he gave us this new life. Yes, to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. But also so that when we are going into the kingdom of his son, we're bringing a lot of people with us. That is the point of us being transformed. We see in these verses that the gospel changes a lot about us. The gospel changes our identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're no longer connected to the old Adam and the old creation. Now we're connected to Christ and his new creation. Our identity has changed. We are Christ's. That's fundamental. Secondly, the gospel changes our relationship with God. The old has passed away, the new has come, and this is from God. Our relationship with God has been changed. No longer are we in judgment. Now we are saved. And the gospel changes our actions. No longer are we free to do whatever we want to do. We also see here the gospel changes then our view of others. And this is immediately where this text goes, before and after. It's how we view other people around us. So yes, the gospel changes us. We need to understand that. But beyond that, the gospel changes how we think and view others. Look at verse 16. We're going to step up one verse up from 17. And we'll look over the verses around. From now on, therefore, it says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Okay, we used to regard people according to the flesh, right? That's what it says. So when I see a guy in my front yard with cash and drugs and blood, and I'm wondering what's happening here, and I'm looking at him and going, ah, danger! I'm regarding him according to the Spirit, right? No. I'm regarding him according to the flesh. I'm seeing him as a fleshly person interacting with me in a fleshly way. And Paul here is saying, no, that is not what the gospel does. The gospel changes how we view other people. Now, therefore, because we've been changed by Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There's a power of the gospel that changes myself in such a way that I no longer view myself the way I was before, but I also I no longer view you the way you were before. Look at verses 14 and 15. Just stepping it up a couple more verses. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's implications to these verses. There's implications to the fact that as we view each other, there are no such thing as mere humans. There's no such thing as just a God that I met. Because the gospel has changed me, because now I see Christ not just according to the flesh as a guy that lived a long time alone in Galilee region and then died on the cross. Because I no longer view him as that, but instead I see him as the eternal Son of God given for my sins and changed me and now he's my Lord and my God. Because the gospel has changed my life and my view of Jesus Christ, I'm no longer free to view other people around me as the background noise in my life. Think about that. Because of the gospel... I am no longer free to view people as the background noise of my life. If you want just a little phrase to remember, there are no Muzak people. How many of you have worked at McDonald's at some point in your life? 
is that it? I really thought we'd be like 20%. That's the statistics, you know. Statistics are garbage in lending. This is a unique place, special. Okay. So you go to McDonald's, and what do you hear in the background? This music. You get into an elevator, what do you hear? It's this music. You don't even know what it is. It just sounds like soft classical music that just is kind of in the background. But if you listen very carefully, you realize it's a watered-down pop song. Okay, that's what it is. You listen very carefully, like, oh, yeah, that's Lady Gaga. Okay? But it doesn't sound like that, right? Because it's just designed to kind of be in the background and kind of be soft. We go about our lives and don't really think about the music. It just creates a less awkward atmosphere as we're kind of in a cramped space with people we don't know. Right? And that's what music is for. So what happens in our daily life as people? Okay, I travel for ABWE a lot. And I get on the airplane and I sit next to these people. I don't know them at all. And so now we're cramped in a very tight quarters for three hours with someone I don't know who really doesn't want to talk to me. Okay? So what do I treat them like? They can just be the back noises of my life. They're taking the aisle seat when I wanted the aisle seat and I just want to get out and go to the bathroom. Okay? The background noise in my life. Or... If my life is transformed by the gospel, I see this person sitting next to me as not a mere human, but as someone who has been created by God with a unique identity and who has a soul that will live forever somewhere. Because the gospel transforms my life and the way I see myself, the gospel also transforms the way I view other people around me. And suddenly the people around us come to life. They are real and they are flesh and blood and they will die and they will go somewhere for eternity. This is what Paul is saying the gospel is doing in his life. It's changing his viewpoint. People are not just background noise. They're not just Muzak humans. They're eternal souls who will spend somewhere for eternity. Because of the gospel, I must view each person as an eternal being of intense spiritual potential. C.S. Lewis a unique way sometimes of putting things that are very common and ordinary in our lives. And in his book, a collection of essays called The Weight of Glory, he says this, which is impacting to me. It is a serious thing, he says, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And understand his context here. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is, but it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What C.S. Lewis is saying to us here is that the people we meet, if we were to see them in eternity, would either cause us to recoil with horror if we were to see them in the horrors of hell. 
if we were to see them in the glories of heaven, we'd be so overwhelmed in our human sensibilities by seeing them in heaven that we would be so overwhelmed by their glory that we would think that maybe they're a god and be tempted to worship them. He's saying there are no mere humans. And Paul is saying exactly the same thing. As we go about our life this Advent season, as we gear up toward Christmas, as we deal with all the inconveniences of life, Paul's challenge to us is to not just see people as the background noise, as obstacles to our comfort, but to see people as the eternal beings which they are. In this world, today there are 7 billion souls living and dying and going into eternity. There's 3,961 people that are part of unreached people groups. Say, Scott, you're being all missionary on us, but that is what I am. What does that mean? It means there's people that live, these are people, 3,961 people groups, ethnicities of their own language and culture, that live in a place that has less than 5% Christian of any type, that includes Catholic, Mormon, whatever, and less than 2% evangelical born again Christians. And why that's important is there's not a strong enough people group in that, or a group of believers in that culture in order to reach them, their own people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will not be saved, and a church planting movement won't begin there unless missionaries go to them. 3,961 unreached people groups. Out of those people groups, there's about 3 billion people that live in those groups. There's about 1.7 billion Muslims in our world living and dying and entering eternity. Almost 500,000 Buddhists, about a billion Hindus, 670,000 animists, a billion that are unreligious at all, would be atheists or agnostics. In Michigan alone, one estimate has 170,000 Muslims living here in Michigan alone. One petty neighbor living next door to you who doesn't know the Two nominal Christians working next to you on the line. Living and dying and going into eternity without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The math on this stuff is staggering. Every day, 154,995 souls enter into eternity. Every day. That's 56 million a year entering into eternity. That's one point seven per second dying and going to hell. How do you process that? If you're like me, you go, stop! I don't want to hear it anymore. This is ruining Christmas. How can I live and breathe with this kind of weight of humanity laying on my shoulders? Is that how you feel maybe this morning? Like, Scott, okay, you got two more minutes and you're done. Get out of here. This is ruining Christmas for me. How can I live a normal human existence with that kind of a weight constantly on my mind? If I live like that, I will be ruined. You can live like that because the gospel has changed my role from a victim to a first responder. Or to put it another way, because of the gospel, my perspective has shifted from the one who was wronged to the reconciled. That is what Paul calls us to. 
Paul doesn't say you're going to see everyone saved because of your hard efforts. No. He says God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. Your attitude has changed. Your mindset has changed. As we open our eyes to the fact there are no mere humans around us, and we open our eyes to what the gospel has done to us, it changed the way we think about other people. There's implications for this. There's a lady named Nadine Hennessy who's here from Michigan. How many of you have ever heard of Nadine? Nobody. Her and her husband were preparing to go as missionaries. They had a baby on the way, and suddenly as a young mid-30s man, he died of a massive heart attack and left a wife and a young daughter behind. This was in the mid-90s. At the same time, uh, maybe you remember Slobodan Milicevic was bringing Serbian uh, soldiers and wiping out the ethnic Kosovars in Kosovo. Genocide. And President Bill Clinton sent in the military. Maybe some of you served in Kosovo at one point. As he brings soldiers into, into Kosovo, they saw the devastation that was left behind. Widows and orphans led to thousands. And here's this young woman, Nadine Hennessy, her dreams of missionary life ruined. She's got a young daughter. She's got a dead husband. She can't go to the mission field anymore. And she's watching the news and seeing the same things you're seeing, but God is moving her heart. And God calls her to go to Kosovo, a Muslim nation, war-torn and devastated, to go with the message of gospel and reconciliation to help widows and orphans know about the love of Jesus Christ. And here we are, many years later, maybe 15 years later, they just had a groundbreaking ceremony in Kosovo where the government of Kosovo, a Muslim nation, gave land to Nadine Hennessy and to ABW Lee, not as ABW Lee, but in connection with ABW Lee, to build and train the school for the next generation of Christian leaders. The president and the three, three uh, the current mayor and three, two previous mayors sitting on the stage, but the most exciting part about that story is that also on that stage is a young man who was led to the Lord as a child, an orphan child, came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior as a young Kosovar, and now is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to other places. So the story of Mark Borison, a brilliant mathematician, Ph.D. in mathematics, did a fellowship at Caltech, brilliant man, could have done almost anything in his life, but God gave him a burden for the people of China, and now works in China getting books printed, gospel books printed legally in China. Or a man named Pat Kirby, who comes out of Sodom, also known as Ohio, and was saved by the power of Jesus Christ and moved to go. He was a businessman. He was an accountant. He managed stuff. He wasn't a Bible scholar or a Bible teacher. And he went to Hungary, and there he served as our business manager in Hungary, helping the missionaries in that region better reach the region with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, two months ago, he died of a massive, unexpected heart attack, leaving a hole in the region. And I bring you these stories to say these people aren't that much different than you or me. They're just people who had a burden and a belief that God had changed their life. And a belief that, that because of the gospel, that they could not view the, the needs around them idly and ignore them. And responded to the call of Jesus Christ. I tell you, as I've 
meditated on these verses, I can't get them out of my mind. And if you will devote yourself to this, you will not be able to get them out of your mind. I do not have the gift of evangelism. I'm not a natural evangelist. But I can't get the thing out of my mind that the people around me are dying and going to hell. And just like Paul said, from now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh. I can't sit on an airplane or walk to an airport or meet my neighbor and not think that I'm viewing them according to the flesh. I can't help but think of Ron. Some of you travel. You see those guys selling American Express cards at the airport. Ron and his wife, Jovada, and they're expecting a baby, and we got began talking, and I asked if there's something I could pray for him about, and he shared with me the fact their marriage is crumbling, he's probably going to get a divorce. And he's like, the things people will tell you if you ask them if you could pray for them. Every time I fly through Atlanta, I'm looking for Ron. Suzanne Cook, a lady I met on the plane, she's from Peru, an immigrant from Peru, and a successful businesswoman in Arkansas. She's got a daughter who got pregnant out of wedlock, and she's walking away from the faith, and she's burdened about that. Or a businessman I met named Danny Howard, who, as I asked if he could pray for me, began sharing how his father-in-law just committed suicide, and the family was devastated. Or the lady who helped direct traffic at the Chicago O'Hare Airport in Alberta, She's a foster mom. She's got a 17-year-old foster daughter that pulls her out of work almost every day because of some trouble that she's gotten into. These are people heading for eternity with burdens and, and heartache, and all they need is someone to come alongside of them and pray for them and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. The gospel will wreck your view of people and change you forever if you allow it to. And lastly, the gospel wrecks your view of God. Look at verse 18. He says, all of this is from God. All of this. The old has passed away, the new has come. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. All of this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God views us in this role as being transformed and a job to do. Scott, I've saved you by the power of the gospel, and now I've given you something to do. You are making reconciliation for me. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel here shows us the intensely personal nature of God. Verse 18, you see these personal pronouns, us. This is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is treating us as individuals and people and He's ministering to us as people. God is personal. He's not just dealing with humanity in general. He's dealing with individuals like myself. The gospel shows us this, that God is intensely personal and cares intensely about you as an individual and about the lost people around you. Secondly, the gospel shows us the incredibly compassionate love that God has toward people. Look in verse 20. It says, Therefore we are ambassadors for God for Christ. God making His appeal us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is this verse saying? It's saying that God's heart is breaking here. That God is making the appeal. That God is the one who is calling people to himself. But how does he do that? He uses you. And 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 you. And me. To plead with people. To believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. God is pleading to us. Because humanity is guilty before him. The gospel also reveals to us the absolute justice of God. In verse 21, it says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of good news. This is a great summary of the gospel. But in this, we see that there is a judgment for sin. It's a very serious judgment for sin. So serious, in fact, that God made Jesus to be a sin-bearer for us. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin. What does this mean? It means that God's justice is so true and so pure and so right that sin had to be judged. And the only way for us to survive that kind of judgment is for someone else to take the blame for us. And Jesus Christ becomes sin for us, who knew no sin, so that we can become the righteousness of God. This is an incredible story of the gospel. But it also shares us something that is very scary about God. Justice is so powerful and the justice is so hot that he would kill his own son to see that justice satisfied. God's justice was poured out on Jesus, and this is serious business. This helps us better understand Paul's passionate appeal in verses 10 and 11. Let's just hop up for a second. Verse 10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is a frightening passage. We're standing before Christ and we're being judged by God. That's frightening in, as it stands alone. Okay? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you were to ask me, Scott, do you want to stand before God and be judged for what you've done alone, good or evil? I'm not happy about that. That is not good news. But we're reading this passage now with some context. We realize that is not the end of the story. That Jesus becomes sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. As we see the context of it, we realize that Jesus Christ is standing with us at that judgment. And that his judgment is such that our righteousness is his and our sin is now put on Jesus. And we're freed if we're in Jesus. That's great news. So now we can look at this passage with some background and go, okay, that's not so bad for us. But read the next section of verses. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your own conscience. Because God is a just God, because sin will be judged, we need Jesus. But the hard thing is that not everyone knows Jesus. And so what is our response to that? Our response to that is, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade people. We see the people next to us and realize, this is an eternal being. We look at the person next to us and we understand that there is a judgment for sin. And we love them and plead with them like God pleads with them to be reconciled to God through Jesus because we realize the justice of God 
is true. story and then we'll be done. There was a young man named Judson. He was raised in a Christian home. In fact, his dad was an elder in his church. And we went off to an Ivy League school, Brown University. You probably heard of it. It's in Providence, Rhode Island. And he was lured away while he went to school from the Christian faith by a fellow student and a close friend. And the young man's name was Jacob Eames. And Eames was a philosopher He had studied many religions, and he had decided that all of them were garbage and rejected all of them and ridiculed the Bible and faith in general. And because he was such a persuasive person and his roommate was young Judson, he convinced him that Christianity was garbage, and Judson's fragile faith crumbled. He was embarrassed to share this with his parents. His dad, after all, was an elder in his church. So he waited until after he had graduated. He graduated as valedictorian for Brown University. Brilliant young man. Shared the bad news with his parents that he had left the faith completely, and then he went off to New York City hoping to write for the theater. While in New York, he found little fulfillment, became disillusioned, was beginning to think again about things of God, and as he was traveling home one night, he stopped, and the only place he could stop was just a small bed and breakfast, and there he spent the night, and as he laid in the room, he could hear all night the groans and the screamings of a man next door to him. I've never experienced that. I can't imagine how horrific that would be, but this is what his whole night was like, and he's screaming, and the man's crying out in desperation, and he's clearly dying and in pain, and he was so tormented that night that he could not fall asleep. And he began to wonder, is this man prepared to die? That's really all that matters in life, isn't it? Is, am I prepared to die? And all the philosophy and all the things that he had learned and all of the skepticism was being confronted by, am I ready to die? And this guy next door to him is screaming out of agony and dying. But at the same time, in the back of his mind, he can just hear his friend Jacob mocking Christianity, mocking this. Really, Judson? Really? Are you this weak? Are you really the valedictorian of Brown University? Are you really spooked by a little superstitious religion? He just laid there, going back and forth in his mind between faith and doubt and shame and fear, and eventually those groans and screaming next door stopped. The next morning, he walked downstairs, and there he met the innkeeper. He asked him what happened last night, and the innkeeper looked him in his face and said, the man is dead. And politely, Judson asked him, do you know who he was? His response was, yes. He was a young man from Brown University. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. so critical of his faith, and yet he was unprepared to die. And he wrote this in his journal. He said, lost. Lost in death. Jacob Eames was lost. Utterly, irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, to the world, to the future. 
lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eve's own views of God were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eve had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. For that, hell should open and that country in and snatch Jacob Eve, my dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be coincidence. Judson was none other than the famous missionary Abenazim Judson. Because of this, his life was transformed. He devoted his entire life. But Sean buried three wives and spent 17 months in prison only for the gospel. And for the next 12 years, he ministered. He only saw 18 people saved. And yet, at his death, after over 37 years of ministry, he left behind a completed Bible in Burmese, over 100 churches planted, and over 8,000 believers. I cannot go back in time and meet that young man that crashed in my front yard. I don't know who he is. I could never find him again. For all intents and purposes, he is gone. I'll never know what happened to him. But every day, I have 86,400 seconds. I have 1,440 minutes. I have 24 hours. I have 365 days. But I can allow the gospel to impact my life in such a way that I make a dent in the universe for the glory of God. This Christmas season, don't just view people as the background music of your life. Let the gospel impact you in such a way that you take the good news of Jesus Christ to every person you meet. Let's pray. Lord, as Judson said, the prospects are as bright as the promises of God, and your promises are true. You call us to give our life for you. Lord, you have changed our way of thinking by the power of the gospel that we no longer view ourselves or each other or you in the same way as before. And God, allow that to permeate how we think and how we breathe and how we move. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Sing of this gospel. Rejoice in it. Also commit our hearts to him. this, I wish I would have earlier, but we have our normal offerings that we take in thanksgiving to God as we give because we love the gospel, but we um, would like to give an offering to Scott Dunford and his family, and so any any cash that is put in the offering will go to the, to the Dunfords, and anything that's specially designated will go to them, and you can, well, even if you need to, write a check later and give it to one of the deacons or ushers, you can, we will send them a check later this week, and so... Let's give God thanks for this great gospel that Scott has proclaimed that has rescued us. Father, I pray that our hearts and our lives would be wrecked by this gospel. Oh God, because when you wreck us, you restore us. And you give us joy in that new life and you rejoice. And we live for a purpose. And I pray that our view of ourselves and our view of you, God, and our view of others would be transformed by the gospel. Our view of our money would be transformed by the gospel. Our view of Christmas would be wrecked by the gospel. 
And all of that wrecking is mercy and it's grace and it's brought back to new life, new creation, new purpose, and new meaning. God, I thank you for the lives and souls that are in this room that give of their lives for others. And I pray that we would all be united in giving our lives with this gospel to others. Thank you for this opportunity to now give. In Jesus' name, amen. As we we take up the offering, just take the next few moments and reflect on the message and commit yourselves to obeying any way that God has spoken to you. your benediction. A benediction is also a charge. It's saying this is what God gives to us and this is what he charges us with. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and he committed the message of reconciliation to us as church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And if you agree, please say amen.